But that was pretty funny. He said the hardest part about being him was the mustache. I thought that was just a good line. It has nothing to do with the sermon. But um, it's hard to appreciate a great ending unless you know the whole story. And so what I did is I just kind of pieced together a bunch of endings that Google says are the best of all time. Do you agree with that? I am the champion of the ninjas. I can relate to that. So <clears throat> today we're talking about Acts chapter 14, verse 8 to 18. We're inspired by history. I'm going to read to you the passage um, of Acts chapter 14, 8 to 18. I'm going to start with the first part and then I'll get to the part that I have a slide for. But I'm just going to read it to you. Paul and Barnabas were at Lystra. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet, and he sprang up and began walking, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in a different language, Lyconian, which is a pretty amazing, different language, the author of Acts puts that in there on purpose, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas, they tried to call Zeus. And Paul, they tried to call Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was right at the entrance of the city, brought out a big bunch of bulls, oxen, cattle, not poodles, cows, to the gates because he was going to sacrifice them with the crowds in the honor of Paul and Barnabas. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard this, they tore their garments, a very Jewish thing to do, by the way, and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring, with you, we bring you good news. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Now, by the way, the reason that Paul mentions rain, we're going to discuss this later, was that Zeus was kind of the god of the sky. And whenever you got rains, if you believed in these false gods, you gave Zeus the credit. So Paul already knows a little bit about what's going on here. Now, inspirationally, endings are great. But the endings to great stories have less meaning unless you understand the history. And you know what else this is true with? Great theology has less meaning. This is important, guys. This is the whole point of our message today. Great theology has less meaning and less passion and less emotional impact on you unless you understand the history behind it. Far too many people, especially people in the American church, read the Bible and they look and they say they like theology or maybe they don't like theology, but it really doesn't impact you and you don't get passionate about it because you don't understand the history behind it. That's what we're talking about today. So this is a picture of that area. It's, it's a ruin of that temple they were talking about, the temple of Zeus, where Paul and Barnabas were and where they had this whole thing take place. As you understand, 
that each passage, whenever you read the Bible, and here's the problem that a lot of people have. They read the Bible, and they don't understand it a lot of times. Or maybe they think they understand it, and they get a terrible interpretation of it because you have to interpret the Bible in three ways. Every time you read every passage, you have to understand it historically, asking the question, what about man? You have to ask the question, theology, what about God? Then you have to ask the question, devotional, what about me? The problem that we do is we go right to the devotional. Oh, what's this verse say to me? You can't determine what the verse is saying to you until you first understand what man was going through, what God is, who he says, what he did, to understand who you are and what you're supposed to do. And so for us to really understand Scripture, you have to understand all three. And so I'm just challenging you from now on in your own life, Whenever you're reading the Bible, you have to ask, what about the history, what about theology, and then ask about the devotional aspect. And if you can't get it all in one setting, guess what you should do? Do a second one. Or a third. Heck, you could spend six months on five verses for all I care. You don't got to read a whole book. Stay in one portion. Learn it as best you can. So let's, with that in mind, let's go through a couple things. Do you remember how Paul and Barnabas became friends? Paul was the most murderous Jewish leader of Christians. He hated the church, and he tried to kill them at every turn. And he's walking on the road to his next killing field, and God blinds him and says, why are you fighting against me? And God saves him. What an incredible miracle. And after God saves him, the rest of the church, the disciples and everyone else, they're really afraid of Paul. Why do we trust him? He could be lying. Everyone but Barnabas. The Christian community wanted nothing to do with Paul. Even though God had just saved him, he experienced the love of Jesus, but had not yet experienced the love of Christians. Interesting. Isn't that the way we are as Christians many times? I'm glad God loved us before everyone else did. But the point is, Barnabas decided to take Paul in and encourage him and mentor him. But think about this now. Paul, who hated the Christians the most, was now going with Barnabas, the only one who had enough courage to hang out with Paul after God saved him, and they go to one of the most heathen places in the world. Now remember, the empire, the Roman Empire was very vast, so maybe some people in this region had heard about a guy that was causing a stir among Jews in Jerusalem during Passover a couple years earlier, and that he was executed for it. This is several years, by the way, after Jesus had resurrected. But certainly they had not heard about a resurrection. And if they did, I'm sure they didn't believe it. Because remember, Rome and Jews both had a huge vested interest in making sure that the story of the resurrection did not spread. You know who else had a vested interest in it? Satan. There they are in the middle of a region drowning in unrestrained immorality and spiritual darkness. Imagine this, guys, being two Jewish men from Jerusalem, just think about that for a minute. They had been converted to Christianity, 
And now they are called, the first ones to be called, to take the gospel, to, have, to talk to people who had no idea about Jehovah. They had no idea about kosher food. Can you imagine if you're a Jewish guy and you're going to this area in Galatia here and there's no kosher food? These people had no idea about temple worship. They had no idea, they had no knowledge base about Isaiah and the prophets. At least if you were preaching to Jewish people, you could say, remember when Isaiah said this? Well, this is what Jesus said. At least there'd be some sort of tie, right? I mean, this is starting from scratch. Paul and Barnabas are in a place where they're unfamiliar with the streets. Heck, they probably wouldn't even know where there was a Starbucks in Galatia. They had no idea about the customs. They could be doing things like, could, you know, you ever seen those stories where like you go to another country and you're trying to speak their language and you get the accent wrong and you're telling somebody to go do something that's bad? <laughs> I've been in that situation where I would try to say something, you know, in another language. I thought, I'm, you know, I'm good stuff. I Googled it. I learned how to say it and I get the accent wrong and it's something I've seen. They have no idea about the streets, the customs, the laws, the clothing. I mean, I'm pretty sure they look Jewish. The language. This goes back, by the way, I wish I could preach a sermon sometime on Pentecost and what that really meant. Pentecost was kind of the reverse of the Tower of Babel, if you remember the story of Babel. Man was together, and God said, i got to slow down the growth of their evil. So he gave them all different languages. And then Pentecost came together, and God said, I'm going to allow them to bring the languages together so they can hear the message of hope and redemption through Christ. It was so bad in this town that sexual perversion was a form of worship. That's how bad this region was that Paul and Barnabas are in. And they're armed with nothing but the gospel story and the promised presence of Jesus from the Great Commission. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And somehow God enables them to work a miracle and they see this heathen cripple who Paul just looks in his eyes and says, you know what, I think he has the gift of faith, Ephesians 2. And he heals him. And that miracle, a result of the gift of faith given to the cripple who Paul healed because he saw he had faith to be healed, is an incredible turning point in world history. Let me explain a little bit what happens then, right? They want to credit Zeus and Hermes with this miracle. Just to give you an idea of who these people were. Zeus was the ruler of all gods and the sky and the rain. That's why Paul mentioned, you think Zeus is the one that gives you rain for your crops? No. It's God. He's the overthrower of his father, Cronus. I'm just giving you a little background on who Zeus and Hermes were. Zeus became the ruler because he led a coup against his father, who was the leader and the ruler of all these fake dudes. He had a thunderbolt to kill any of those who angered him. That's, isn't that kind of funny how a lot of us view God sitting up on the throne with lightning coming from his finger? That's not God, that's Zeus. Infamous for his many affairs. This is the God they worship. He was a philanderer. He's the God of all natural phenomena. Anything that occurs in nature that you couldn't explain, oh, that's Zeus. Now, Hermes was the God of money, the God of commerce. He was also the chief messenger between the gods and humans. He was kind of like the advocate between the two. He moved between the world of man and the world of gods to make sure that there was a connection. That was his job. That's what Barnabas was, they thought. 
He was the messenger of the gods whenever there was a message to send to the humans. And he was a link between the mortals and the Olympians. He was the one that would bridge the gap between poor people who had no, under, no power and the great people who had all the power in the universe. He protected travelers and thieves. And also, for some reason, he protected athletes. I'm not sure why, but they were safe because of Hermes. The other thing he also often did, he would trick other gods to protect humans. Isn't that kind of interesting? In some ways, you could see some similarities between Hermes and Jesus. Although Jesus doesn't trick God, but he is the advocate for us to Heavenly Dad. Now, think about all this. I've explained to you the region, how bad it is, and these gods, they had no understanding about Jewish religion, the prophets, all that stuff. Paul, just a few years earlier, loved to kill Christians. God saves him. All the rest of the church is scared of him, except for Barnabas, who mentors him and helps him and carries him along. Then they go on this first trip to the area of Galatia, and they go to this area here that speaks a different language, different customs, different streets, no Starbucks, no kosher food, nothing like that. And then they have this cripple, and then he heals them, and then the priest of the temple of Zeus comes out and wants to offer sacrifice, and they say, no, don't do it. This isn't about Zeus. It's about God who gives the rain, God who gives the blessing, God who gives salvation. What kind of odds would Vegas put on these Jewish guys being successful? Would you want to put your money on it? What about even leaving the place alive? Heathen Gentiles, do you think they would ever choose to embrace the teachings of a dead rabbi from Nazareth who supposedly rose from the grave after some sort of political demonstration in Jerusalem? I mean, it's just silly, guys. Let's be honest. What a silly job. Unless Heavenly Dad intervened and gave the gift of faith. Do you think Paul's experience in Galatia and the surrounding areas, seeing God say completely ignorant Gentiles who worshiped false gods and had no moral code whatsoever, could have shaped Paul's theology? Do you think that had any idea maybe about how it influenced Paul to write about how God chooses men and not the other way around? Do you think? There's two things we learn from this story. Number one, God is sovereign. This stuff doesn't happen without God's intervention. A lame man being healed, these guys understanding the language, and them trusting Jewish people who are talking about a God who is better than Zeus and Hermes, who they have, by the way, in today's terms, a multi-million dollar temple built to right at the entrance of the city. I mean, Paul saw this ridiculous miracle of his faith and the conversions in places that would be impossible. I think his theology was heavily influenced by what he saw in real life. And I'm going to give you an example of that. Because what we also see is the Great Commission promise is so true. You shall be witnesses to me to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And I'll be with you always, even into the end of the age. Watch this. 
I'm just going to read this passage to you. Tell me if you could see a little bit of Paul's experience in the Galatia region in this passage. You ready? What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, Or the sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep led to the slaughter. No, I tell you, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, this is what Paul says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation, you think he covered it all, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, after understanding the history of Paul, do you think you have a little bit better appreciation for what he wrote in Romans 8? By the way, go back and read the whole chapter. It'll freak you out. I challenge you, do that this week. Read Romans 8 in light of the history I just explained. I got another one. You guys know I love this one. Ephesians 2, 8 to 13. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then look what he says about the Gentiles right after that. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, who once who you once were far off through him, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Maybe now with this historical understanding, can you appreciate a little bit more the passion that drips from Paul's pen? Can you understand why Paul believed in the sovereignty of God and salvation? Can you understand why Paul believed in election? Can you understand why Paul believed that man does not choose God? God initiates and saves man. Here's what we know. God uses history as a fuel for our confidence in his sovereignty. That's what we know. History is what inspired Paul. And the more we understand that history behind the book of Acts, the harder it is for us to deny Paul's passion about the sovereign hand of God and the salvation of all those who trust him. Hope you understand my point today. 
I told you that ridiculous story about what happened on his first missionary journey, that incredible, that incredible scene. Here's what we know about that. Impossible, right? Jews from Jerusalem talking about a guy who was resurrected a couple years earlier and people believe it, who are worshiping Zeus in a different language? Impossible, right? Nope. You know why? Because his God, their God, and our God is sovereign. He saved you. He chose you. You didn't choose him. He reached down and said, I don't care about all the things that are keeping my people from worshiping me. I'm going to cut through all the crap, and I'm going to get to their heart, and I'm going to transform their lives. Maybe today he's cutting through all your crap and saying, you are mine. Worship me. Father, thank you.